Exodus chapter 15, turning back to our passage that we read, indeed to our study after many weeks now, and we have entitled the message this morning, True Praise. Let's just unite our heart together in a short word of prayer. Lord, we thank Thee again, and we're found in the meeting house this morning to worship and praise Thee, our living God. We thank Thee for the opportunity to seek Thee in prayer for the opportunity to sing our praise unto thee, for the time, Lord, we have taken even to read thy precious word that is forever settled in heaven. And Father, we pray that thou might bless us as we come now just to give consideration to it, that thou would, Lord, close us in by thyself, thou would shut out every distracting thought. Lord, there might be a word in season to each and every heart, whether young or old or alike, And, O God, that thou would be glorified. I pray to that end thou would take me, Lord, and thou would fill me with thy spirit and with power. And thou would give us those words that must and shall prevail, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Something that marks this denomination apart from others is that we are traditional in our worship and especially traditional in our music. What that means is, we're opposed and we do not use what is called the contemporary Christian music. That is an offer in other places. Music, men and women, young people, is good, or it can be good, but it is also the ability to destroy a church. Many have succumbed to the notion today that we must have a worship band, that we must have a contemporary service to attract the young people. And such gatherings are different from other church meetings by the worship band, by the place that music is given in terms of priority in such gatherings in general. And there even, I have known places where they've come out of the church building and they have their evening service in other halls because it's a contemporary service. And these are used as a means to swell the crowd and as I've already stated, to garner the young people. But alas, such drastic and in many cases irreverent means have invariably failed. Those churches, some of whom might like to call themselves evangelical, are still decreasing in number. The young people haven't stayed, they're gone. And all the time, the traditional, the reverent means of worship has been sacrificed. And it has discouraged many of the most faithful saints of God. It's worth stating Now, there's no such thing as a worship leader found in the Scriptures. That's what you will find in many cases today. There's a worship leader. The Lord has given to His church, I quote, some apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, and pastors and teachers. Peter, Paul, nor John spoke about a worship leader in the New Testament. They're all silent on any such position. It will already be obvious that when we touch on the subject of music, that it's a massive subject. 
It's a massive subject in itself that I am not going to do it justice for merely bringing a few thoughts by means of an introduction to my message this morning about it. But I do so because when we come into the passage of Exodus chapter 15, we're actually entering into the praise of Israel. It's a new day. There's a newfound freedom found among them. Now their standpoint is on the other side of the Red Sea. There are people on a journey to a promised land that God had for them. But before they can take a step further, they can do no else than to lift up their hearts in praise. And that expression of thanksgiving unto the Lord means that they are bursting forth in song. Their great deliverance inspired them to lift up their voices. And rightly, therefore, has it been described not only as the first song in the Scriptures, but also it has been described and designated as the song of redemption. Because it comes from hearts, the hearts of a redeemed people. It should be noted that there are two words that we should not confuse in the great truth of redemption, but they're very closely connected. If I can bring you to Jeremiah, I'll show you what I mean. Jeremiah chapter 31, for example, and the words are verse 11. The two words is found in this verse. It says, For the Lord hath redeemed Jacob and ransomed him from the hand of him that was stronger than he. You have another example of what I'm bringing out to you in Hosea. Hosea chapter 13, and the words are verse 14. I will ransom them from the power of the grave. I will redeem them from death. And men and women there in those two verses, Jeremiah 31, also Hosea chapter 13, you have two words. You have the word ransom and you have the word redeemed. Now there's two different words closely connected. Ransom, for example, is a part of redemption. It's the payment of the price. God said, I have found a ransom. Whereas redemption, in the fullest sense, is the deliverance of those for whom the price was paid. What use would the ransom be if the captive was not released? And redemption is what these people had experienced. They were no longer in bondage. They were no longer in the land of Egypt under their oppressor. They had been delivered. Which is how, by the way, the Greek often translates redemption in many places. Delivered. And thus being delivered from the power of the Egyptians and redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. What did they do? They sang. And so should we. And we should desire to offer what I've entitled the message as true praise unto God. I want you to come with me in this. I, I, I suggest that we're not going to cover it this morning. But I might surprise myself, but I don't think we will. We'll have to come back to it. I want you to notice, first of all, the setting of this song. We know positionally 
that the nation of Israel were now on the other side. They're no longer facing the mountains surrounding them and the Red Sea before them. They've crossed over as on dry land. They're on the other side of the Red Sea by the miraculous power of God. They had walked through it as on dry ground. What a miracle. But now, note the setting as determined by the opening words of this very uh, chapter. It says, Then sang Moses. We've got to stop. What does then refer to? It says, then sang Moses and the children of Israel. There's the very point in which they burst out into song. And the word then encourages, it draws us back, if you like, to the previous chapter. For it was then that the Lord saved Israel out of the hand of the Egyptians. Just look at verse 30. Uh, Thus the Lord, of chapter 14, Thus the Lord saved Israel that day out of the hand of the Egyptians. And Israel saw the Egyptians dead upon the seashore. And Israel saw that great work which the Lord did upon the Egyptians. And the people feared the Lord and believed the Lord and his servant Moses. Then, that's when it was they sang. They saw the dead upon the shore. Israel knew they were delivered at the Red Sea. They're delivered from the oppressor too because they saw that they were drowned and they were lying on the shore and then drowned in the depths of the, of the waters. It's then that they sang. If you come to the Psalms, Psalm 106, the psalmist brings it out. He captures it in just one verse. 106th Psalm and verse 12, it says this, Then, there it is again, believed they his words. They sang his praise. They believed his word. They saw the word fulfilled in their deliverance, in the drowning of their captives. Then they sang. It's not an unusual setting. I'll just give you an example of that. If you turn to Judges chapter 4 this time, the book of Judges chapter 4 and verse 23. And here we read about God subduing the king of Canaan. It says, So God subdued on that day Jabin, the king of Canaan, before the children of Israel, and the hand of the children of Israel prospered. And prevailed against Jabin the king of uh, Canaan until they had destroyed Jabin king of Canaan. God subdued them. The very king and those that were against the children of Israel. But did you notice the sequel even to that very same deliverance? Chapter 5 verse 1. Then sang Deborah. And Barak, the son of Ahinamim, on that day, saying, Praise ye the Lord, etc., etc. There's the follow-up again. There's the sequel. Then sang Deborah. They had cause to sing. What a contrast this setting makes to that of previous chapters that we have already considered and studied in the book of Exodus. When they were in Egypt, when they were in the house of bondage, there was no joyful strains upon their lips. Instead, what we read of is of their sighing by reason of their bondage. They were known for their crying when surrounded by their seemingly insurmountable difficulties. Now their sighing gives way to singing. And their groans gives way to praising. And they take no longer up with, they're not taken any longer up with themselves, but they're taken up with the Lord. 
that which had brought about this change was their deliverance. They were a redeemed people by the blood of the Lamb and by the power of God. You see, it's only the redeemed of the Lord who can really sing and praise the Lord. I want you to understand that. For in Scripture, you will read, for example, of the angels. And the angels are heard shouting. And the angels even are heard praising God at the incarnation of the Christ child. And in heaven they're heard to be saying in the book of the Revelation, Worthy is the Lamb of, of, of God. But they're never read to be singing. We never read of them singing. Why? Because the angels never sinned. They didn't have to be redeemed. Men and women, truly only the redeemed of the Lord can really sing. Yes, we, we have been in our own saved days. We've been in meetings and we can take up the hymnal and we can sing. But it's only by words from the lips outward. It's only the redeemed that can sing from the heart. Israel never sang in Egypt. It's not until they were redeemed from their bondage that they sang. And the truth likewise can be applied to ourselves. We cannot really sing until we've experienced God's redemptive power through the Lord Jesus Christ, through His work on Calvary. And we have something to sing about. We've been liberated from our sin. To sing unto him. And the words in the hymnal, they suddenly become something new to us. And they have a deeper meaning to us. We're not taken up any longer, maybe with a tune, but we can see the words and we apply them to our own circumstance and our own experience. You should also note the parts. Those who are musical, I'm not so much musical. You'll know that when you hear me singing. Uh, but... I would love to play. I would love to be able to play. I'd love to play the violin. But I suppose the old dog's too, too old for that carry on. But I'm not musical. But those that are musical, they will often refer to the parts that are given to any piece. And there are those who might be alto, and there are those that might be bass, and there are those that can do the harmony, and they're known as the parts. Well, there's parts to this song of Moses as well. It's capable of being divided into parts, basically of which there are two. In the first part, there's praise. In the second part, there's prophesy. In other words, if I can explain that, the first part looks back at what God did for Israel. At all that He brought them through. The second part, prophecy, it looks forward to what God was going to do for them yet in the future. And if what he did at the Red Sea was anything to go by, and the demonstration of his mighty power, then at every confidence that he would do even mightier works for them in the future days. This first part can be subdivided even, each describing the work of God at the Red Sea, which climaxed in the destruction of the Egyptians. You'll notice it ends in verse 5. The depths have covered them. They sank into the bottom as a stone. The second subdivision ends in verse 10. They sank as lead in the mighty waters. The third subdivision ends in verse 12. The earth swallowed them. And all in all, it's a tremendous song. It's accredited to Moses. 
I don't have any difficulty with that. Moses penned the first five books of the Bible. If you turn to Psalm 90, you'll notice it's a Psalm of Moses. But it is a song where you can see many truths. And some of which we will touch upon in a moment. But it's a song where you can have maybe even your own divisions. You can break it up into different parts. But essentially there's two parts. That which looks back and that which looks forward. Just consider the participants. Those who sang it. Verse 1, it was Moses and the children of Israel. Moses is singing. The children of the nation of Israel at large are singing. It's the nation in particular that had every just cause to sing such a song. Because God had chosen them, not because they were mightier than the rest, not because they were greater in number, not because they had walked in accordance to God's word, and they'd never disobeyed the Lord, for they hadn't. They were a disobedient people, but because God loved them, because God loved them and it set them apart as being different from all the other nations and dear child of God that ought to cause us to stop and to think and to why you too want to praise the Lord and why you too would want to sing unto the Lord you'll want to do that because God loved you not because you love God but because God loved you 1 John 4 and 10, Herein is love, not that we love God, but that God loved us and sent forth His Son to be a propitiation for us, for our sin. He chose you in Christ. He has saved you. He's redeemed you from the bondage of your iniquities and of your sin. He's brought you unto Himself through the atoning work of the Lord Jesus Christ. You've been redeemed with precious blood. You've been adopted into the family and fold of God. This morning no longer finds you in the grip of Satan. You have the assurance that your soul will never be lost in the eternal fires of the lake of of hell like a fire. You will never be there because Christ has paid your hell. He has paid your judgment that was our due at the cross of Calvary. Tell me something. Is that not cause to lift up your heart and praise? Is that not cause to lift up your heart and to sing in adoration of all that the Lord has done for you? And of all he's yet going to do for you. Never be ashamed to open your mouth and praise unto God. We're Presbyterian in government. But I don't ever wish that my congregation would be Presbyterian in the way they sing the hymns. You couldn't hear them behind a wet paper bag. Most of them. Don't be afraid to sing out. Young people, sing out. There's a time in in my teenage years, and maybe I said to you before, it's worth saying it again, as a teacher in my school put me off singing. And she was a Christian too. Nice lady. She said the wrong thing. But you know, there's years, years later, I got over that. And I just open my mouth now. Young person, young man, don't be afraid to sing. If the Lord has saved you, you have something to sing about.
And that's how it was with the children of Israel, you see. There's the setting of this song. I want you to note also the theme of this song. It's when we consider the actual song that we realize how much it stands in contrast to much of what is presented as Christian music and modern worship today. That which is most obvious is the theme of the song is the person of the Lord. Just let that resonate in your soul. It's the person of the Lord. It's all about God. And glorifying God throughout the song. Moses, you think of Moses just for a second. He'd been greatly used of God up until this point of time. After he had sought to uh, get out of the will of God and, uh, and said that he wasn't fit at the burning bush and all of that, and, and there was obedience given him, and he went at the Lord's bidding to deliver the nation of Israel, and he guided them, he led them, even when it seemed that he was leading them into a cul-de-sac, God greatly used him. God greatly used him at the Red Sea. What faith it was, what courage it must have been in Moses' part to lead those millions of Israel across that Red Sea, from the place where they had food, to the barrenness of the wilderness. Yet he did it. But listen to me. He's not mentioned in all of this song. There's not a word about Moses. It's all about the Lord. And just so that you can see that, consider with me that the name of God occurs 12 times over the space of 18 verses. Often it's Lord, it's Jehovah. Then there are the pronouns. He, him, thy, thou, thee. All referring to God. Occurring a further 30 plus times. And so, in the space of 21 verses, we have 40 to 50 times in this portion of Scripture that God has spoken about. And dear people, that stands in stark contrast to modern homology and to what is offered as praise. A.W. Pink, and A.W. Pink goes back somewhat 50, 60 more years ago. He commented on this, he said this, and I quote it. So many hymns today, brackets of hymns they deserve to be called, are full of sentimentality instead of divine adoration. They announce our love to God instead of his love for us. They recount our experiences instead of his mercies. They tell more of human attainments instead of Christ's atonement sad index of our low state of spirituality. How different to what the song of Moses was. The end of verse 2 sums it up. I will exalt him. That's the end of the quote. He's got it spot on. See, H. Spurgeon said the song is all of God. There's not a word about Moses. It's true praise, for the song is God-centered in nature with every verse in the song magnifying the Lord and His attributes. And He alone is worthy of all our praise and of all our worship. We might suggest, here's the great hallelujah chorus of the nation of Israel. And you know it's so important that it's repeated in Revelation. Turn over to Revelation chapter 15. I'm pointing out to you the great contrast 
to modern worship. I know why I'm not in any of those churches, but I know what is sung. There's a modern repetitious stuff. There's a stuff that is shallow and frothy and full of sentimentality and, and all of man. It's nothing of God. And young people and older men, I would say, and women, beware of it. Revelation 15 verse 3 says this. It takes us to a different standpoint. We're in heaven here. And they sing the song of Moses, servant of God. And the song of the Lamb saying, Great and marvelous are thy works, Lord God Almighty. Just and true are thy ways, thou King of saints. Who shall not fear thee, O Lord, and glorify thy name? For thou only art holy. For all nations shall come and worship before thee. For thy judgments are made manifest. In these verses all the redeemed are in heaven. All sin and wickedness is gone. For nothing that defileth shall ever enter in there. The Old Testament saints and the New Testament saints are glorifying God. How do they do it? It's with the song of Moses, hand of the Lamb. In other words, they pick up the same theme. Same theme that is found in the Old Testament. The same theme that we're reading about in the Song of Moses. The theme of redemption. And which they saw its fulfillment in what Christ has done in his work at the cross of Calvary. And that's the song in heaven. You consider with me some of the reasons why this praise, why the praise in this song is to God. It speaks of his success over Pharaoh in many ways. It was God who had triumphed gloriously. Verse 2, The Lord is my strength and song. He's become my salvation. He's my God. I will prepare him in habitation. My Father's God and I will exalt him. Verse 1 says at the end, For he hath triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider hath he thrown into the sea. You see that word triumph, it means risen up. It means to exalt. In his mighty works, the Lord is raised up. He's exalted. The chariots were cast into the sea. His captains were drowned in the depths of it. Verse 6, He hath dashed in pieces the enemy. Pharaoh lost everything in his battle against God. The Lord God is the victor. He always is. He always will be. Never forget that. Especially when there are times that we look around, it looks to the human eye that Satan is winning. He is not. God is on his throne. The Lord reigneth. And when the battle is over, which includes the end of this age, the devil will be the most defeated foe. Oh, the world will try, and the world will try and picture the saint as a loser. Men and women, the saint is on the winning side. And if God be for us, who can be against us? You see also the strength of God mentioned in these words. The verses... Uh, de- depict and show the great power of God repeated 
by Moses. From verse 1, the horse and the rider hath he thrown into the sea. Verse 6, thy right hand, O Lord, has become glorious in power. Thy right hand, O Lord, hath dashed in pieces the enemy. Verse 7, thou hast overthrown them that rose up against thee. You see a little word, rose up? It means those that are established in their anger against God. He's overthrown them. That's the power of God. It's just took a blast of his nostrils, verse 8, and the waters are gathered together. Not a powerful picture. With the blast of thy nostrils. It's not a whole lot, yours now. Sometimes you have to clear the nose. It's just a wee thing that you do on your, on, your, on your way. And just a blast of the Lord's nostrils as it were, as it is depicted under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And God caused those waters to be gathered together. Who is like unto the Lord? Verse 11. Fearful in praises, doing wonders. Verse 12, thou stretchest out thy right hand. You see, all of these prove that God's power has been abundantly proven. He just overthrew and destroyed the most powerful Egyptian army. Those chosen captains were drowned in the depths. He divided the Red Sea for good measure. God's power, men and women, can overthrow the greatest of the forces of man. His power is over his creation as well. What an encouragement and what a comfort that is to the people of God. For our faith today is in that same God. There's nothing too hard for the Lord. There's a lovely thought there that I I don't want to miss before I go on. We've read it over and over again. It says there, for example, about the right hand of God. Verse 6, thy right hand, O God, O Lord, is become glorious in power. Thy right hand, O Lord, hath dashed in pieces the enemy. If you notice verse 12, you'll see that it's mentioned three times in this song. Thou stretchest out thy right hand, the earth swallowed them. That's one of those terms that is used. Of God in the Scripture. There's a long, long theological term for it. But I can simply say to you what it means is this that the Lord uses something, God the Holy Ghost uses something that is familiar to us so as to help us to understand something more about God. And so throughout the Word of God you will have, for example, the eye of the Lord is upon the righteous or his ear is open unto their cry. But remember, of course, John 4, it says, God is a spirit. And they that worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. A spirit doesn't have eyes and ears and all of that. And here's another one. The right hand of God. But it's used, you see, because we are familiar with our hands. We are familiar with our eyes and our ears, etc. And it gives us a, a deeper understanding of something about God. And the right hand is predominantly the strongest hand. 
That isn't unless you're left-handed. But there's very few left-handed in comparison to right-handed. But it is predominantly the strongest hand. And therefore it demonstrates, it teaches to us the greatness of his power. His right hand is unsurpassed. With his right hand stretched out, the earth swallowed them. Does that not speak to you of the power of God? And just think of the one who sits at the right hand of God today. He is our heavenly Benjamin, the son of my right hand. What a powerful saviour we have. There is also not only the power of God, there's the salvation of God. The entire song is about how God saved his people. Verse 2, we read it, the Lord is my strength and song. He's become my salvation. You might uh, maybe have a difficulty with that. Well, if you turn back to chapter 14, maybe it'll throw light on it. Because Moses said to the children of Israel, on the other side of the Red Sea, when they were in that tight place, he said in chapter 14, verse 13, fear ye not, stand still and see the salvation of the Lord which he will show you today. For the Egyptians whom you have seen today, you shall see them again no more forever. And now Jehovah has shown it to them, and they can exclaim, the Lord has become my salvation. The greatness of it. They were brought out through the Red Sea as in dry land. Pharaoh and his army were never to be seen again. God completely destroyed them. So it is in the gospel. When God saves us, we are forever delivered from the enemy of our souls. Eternal damnation is no longer a threat. Romans 8 and 1, there is therefore now no condemnation to them which are in Christ Jesus. There's the grace in salvation. Verse 13, Thou in thy mercy hast led forth the people which thou hast redeemed. It's all of God's mercy. Israel were a stubborn people. They were murmuring and complaining, yet God delivered them. It's all of his mercy. And so it is in God's salvation for the sinner today. It's all of his matchless grace. It's all of his mercy. He bestows blessings on us that we're not deserving of. They're a purchased people. Verse 16. Fear and dread shall fall upon them By the greatness of thine arm they shall be as still as a stone till the people pass over, O Lord, till the people pass over which thou hast purchased. Does that not sum up every child of God in Christ today? We've been bought with that price, that ransom price. Even the precious blood of the Savior, we've been purchased by Christ to be his own. And then there's the joy of salvation. They sung the song with a joyful heart. What joy God's salvation brings to the sinner's heart. I wonder, can you sing it this morning? A happy day, happy day, when Jesus washed my sins away. Oh, happy day that fixed my choice on thee, my Savior, and my God. Can you sing it? There's the guidance in salvation. Verse 13 again. It says, Thou hast guided them in thy strength unto thy holy habitation. After their deliverance from uh, the Egyptians 
and through the Red Sea, they would know what it would be to be guided. As the fiery cloud and pillar went before them. And in God's salvation, the believer is not just left to themselves, but the believer has the guide and by the Holy Spirit. And as many as are led by the Spirit of God, they are the sons of God. Romans 8 and verse 14. How Israel, you see, were delivered at the Red Sea completely. And how they burst out into song. It reveals the message of the gospel. It's all about Christ. And then, woman, as I suspected, I haven't uh, time to go any further. There's other stuff there that I need uh, to bring out, maybe. But that maybe will suffice us for this morning. But I simply close by asking you this. Have you the song of the soul set free this morning? You don't need to sing the old pop songs. You don't need to sing the old stuff that they have in the public houses. Because God has given you a new song. You see, that's how we opened our worship today. Psalm 40. He hath put a new song in my mouth. Even praise unto our God. Have you got that song? Of the soul set free from the bondage of sin. If not, you can have now. If you repent of sin and turn to Christ as your Savior and as your Redeemer, may the Lord enable you to do so. And may as God's people we ever desire to offer that true praise unto our God. Not to be taken up with the froth. Not to be taken up with that which is shallow and all man-centered but worshiping the Lord. The Lord bless his word to our hearts this morning.